If you would, please uh, turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. That's where we'll be this morning. Ephesians chapter 4. Well, some time ago, uh, I came across an article that was ranking some of the most painful injuries that a football player could experience, in this guy's opinion. Now, he was a football player himself, but I'm not sure how you become qualified to write an article like that. Do you have to experience them all? Not sure. Nonetheless, it was an interesting read. A little disturbing at points. Broken ribs came in at number eight. One little broken rib can be very painful. Anyone that's broken a rib in here can tell you uh, just how painful it can be. Since your lungs push on your ribs, it hurts literally all the time. Breathing, laughing, speaking, coughing, you name it. All from one little rib. Any guesses to what was at the top of the list? A broken femur. Yeah, that, uh, that would be pretty painful, I would think. This guy called it the worst of all possible bone fractures. And I'll spare you from the gory details. I showed an x-ray of the uh, broken femur last service. I decided not to do that this service. So, <laughs> didn't want anyone to pass out. But reading the article gave me a lot more empathy for a childhood friend. My friend shattered his femur on a school snow, uh, snow skiing trip uh, when I was in grade school. And uh, he was going down a black diamond course, definitely wasn't ready for that, and uh, he hit a tree. Yeah, he was lucky to only shatter his femur. But uh, I was on a chairlift, and I remember hearing the crack just reverberate uh, down, the, down the ski slope. And one broken bone is so detrimental to the effectiveness of your body, isn't it? Imagine how crazy it would have been if my, my friend, who shattered his femur, would have said, it's just one bone. I have 205 other ones that uh, I, I, I use, they're fine, they're healthy. Do I really need to address my broken femur when I have so many other healthy bones? Well, obviously nobody's going to say that, even if it's just a little broken rib. Why? Because one broken bone, one of the parts of your body, affects the rest of your body. If your whole body is healthy, then you're effective. But if you get injured, or you even get sick, we all know productivity goes down in a hurry. And that's because every part of your body, the way God's designed it, serves a purpose. If one of the parts are sick or broken, you need it on the mend as quickly as possible. And you need it on the mend so that, so that you can get it functioning again. That's the goal. So that you can get about your life and your business and carry on with all that, that God's given you to, to, to do. And what we're going to see here today in Ephesians 4 is that the exact same thing is true in the church, in Christ's body. Every single one of you here today, every single member here at TBC, is absolutely indispensable to the growth of the body. At your conversion... Christ not only saved you, as glorious as that is, and He did, but not only did He do that, but He also gifted you, our text is going to say this morning. He gifted you specifically and individually because He intends in that gifting to use you 
to help you grow this church and to grow us to full maturity. But I think the reality is that many, many in the church are sometimes more like a broken bone than a healthy one. We're still riddled with sin. Or we're unsure exactly how to be useful. We're just hesitant to commit to relationships to other people because they're hard and messy. Sometimes you get hurt. We need mending to be useful. And Paul's going to tell us that's where the leaders come in, the congregation. In this passage, Christ has even supplied what we need to be mended. He's given the body leaders to equip the saints for ministry usefulness. And as the body is mended, as each part is working in the ways that Christ has gifted it to work, Paul says the body will build itself up. It will grow. It will accomplish Christ's mission on earth. Unbelievers will be converted. Believers will be transformed. Pastors will be raised up. Missionaries sent out. And God's wisdom will be put on display for the entire universe to see as we believe and follow what Paul says here in Ephesians 4. Now, if you've been around here any length of time, you know that this particular passage is convictional for our church and for our pastoral team. And um, Pastor Farrell and many others have mentored me even in this text in its application. And this passage has really been on my heart for a while for, for really a couple of reasons. And the first is because we have so many members here who serve our body so well. Okay? So well. I serve alongside many of them in the different areas of ministry that I'm personally involved in. Many of you exemplify what we're going to see in our text today. And it thrills our hearts as, as shepherds. And I think Paul's goal in a passage like this would be to encourage you in your serving. Especially if you're tempted to grow weary at times, like we all are. Paul's going to give us a vision for service that's going to carry us through the hard days that we face in it. But I also wanted us to revisit this passage because we've had so many new people join our church over the last year, year and a half. And some of you are still relatively new to our body, so we wanted to take uh, the chance to unfold this crucially important text to you. It's really going to give you an understanding of how our ministry is structured and what we're about and your role in it. And we want to show you just how vital you are to the functioning of our ministry and the mission at Timberlake. So the men were gracious, uh, give me two cracks at it, the morning and the evening, so we'll cover our, our text in two services. Like I said, the first part this morning the, and the rest of it tonight in the, in the evening service. Now a little disclaimer, the passage is, is kind of complex, but the message is not. Okay? The point of the passage is very simple, as you can see in our, our, our title this morning. We've been gifted for growth, that's Paul's point. Paul's basically showing us that, that Christ intends, the Lord of the church intends, every single one of us to be vitally connected, to be growing and serving right here in the church. We can summarize Paul's argument in this text really in just three statements. And that's going to be our outline moving forward, uh, both this morning and this evening. So three statements that really summarize Paul's argument. And, and first uh, is, is just that Christ gifts the body. All right? Christ gifts the body. And he does that in fulfillment of Scripture. 
The church has been richly supplied with gifts from Christ, and he intends us to use those gifts to grow the body. But we often aren't as healthy as we need to be. We also need to become healthy so that we can use these gifts more and more effectively. So Christ also gives us leaders who equip the body. Leaders who equip the body. And we'll go there tonight. They equip us to become more useful to Christ and more useful to His church. And that leads us to a growing maturity in Him. And finally, as that, as that whole process is happening, our third statement, the body grows the body. The body grows the body. And that happens as we exercise our gifts faithfully and consistently. And so the cycle continues. The Lord saves us, and maybe we're still like the broken rib or femur, and we're mended. Then we become even stronger than before, like a bone does after it's set and, and heals. And the body performs as it was designed to by Christ for His great glory and, uh, and our good. So, let's unpack Paul's argument. And this morning, we're only going to have time to look at that very first statement, that Christ gifts the body. So we can say it like this. Just I'll give it a little bit longer of a statement. Christ gifts the body in fulfillment of Scripture. Let's read, the starting in verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. So, Paul says here that Christ himself has given each one of us grace, that's the word he uses, grace. And he's done it in fulfillment of Scripture. He quotes Psalm 68. We'll look at that toward the end. Now there's a lot here in these verses, so let's, let's unpack what really Paul means when he says that Christ has given grace to the body. So I'll just summarize it by, by saying Christ gifts the body, and then we'll look at how he, he does that in fulfillment of Scripture at the end. So look with me again back in verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. I'm sure as you, as you work through a text like this, you might have a number of questions as you read these verses. So I'll, I'll ask a few and just try to answer those as we work through this text here and, and seek to apply it. So what does grace mean here? Okay, What does grace mean in, in this context? Why does, he, why does he use this word? Well, Paul uses this language of grace in other letters for spiritual gifts. And that's what he means here. And we could, say, we could say it like this. It's grace for ministry. Grace for ministry. Or grace gifts, if you want to call them that. And these are specific gifts, specific enablements given to you by Christ that He expects you to use for the edification of the church. They're enablements given to you by Christ, and then He expects you to do something with that, with those enablements to use them for the edification of the church, for its upbuilding. So that brings another question up here, at least in my mind. Like, why doesn't he just call them gifts or enablements? Why does he call them grace? Well, in the next verse, he will actually call them gifts, as he quotes Psalm 68, but for now, he calls them grace. 
And that's because your spiritual gifts are just that. They're grace. They are a gracious gift. Or we can say it like this. They're manifestations of the grace of God in your life. And here's the point. They didn't originate with you. God gave them to you freely. You can't brag about them. And so any of your abilities to build up any other Christian in the faith is totally otherworldly. It's from Christ Himself. And that's incredibly amazing and humbling at the same time. So that's what they are, and I think why he calls them grace in, these, in this first verse here. But, but what exactly are these gifts? What exactly are they? Well, we haven't read yet, but down in verse 11, he, he gives a few examples of these gifts. He talks about apostles or apostleship, prophecy, evangelism, shepherding and teaching. Now these aren't all the gifts by a long stretch. They're just a few. He's just, he's just highlighting a select grouping of gifts. And he's highlighting those particular gifts because there's something that connects them all together. They are word-based gifts, is what we might call that. They're focused on the word that, that Christ has given. He's given these gifts in order to help equip the rest of the church in its gifts. Does that make sense? But we'll get into that tonight. But here, Paul doesn't give any other examples beyond those of, of what he means by this gifting. So that's not exactly his point, is to, to get into the, to, to the nuances. But because we're, this, is a, this is a standalone message, or standalone two messages, I think it'd be helpful um, just to pan out and, and look at some other places where Paul does uh, talk about these gifts. So we won't go to the passages, but you can write them down. Romans 12, uh, 6 through 8, Paul discusses some of these gifts. And again, in 1 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10, he does the same thing. So just think, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12. And just for our purposes, here, here are a few of these gifts. Uh, maybe we call it a sampling of the gifts in, that we see from Paul. Peter talks about it too, but, but um, we get a lot of detail from the Apostle Paul. So there are gifts of helping and serving. Similar gifts here, so I grouped them together. Helping or serving. And these kind of gifts refer to believers who, who thrive in uh, assisting other people. Helping other people, right? They typically thrive when they are tasked to, to help carry out something. They're typically not the visionary type or the, the, the folks who are you know, casting vision, compelling others to follow. They more get alongside those folks and help them implement, um, implement the, the leader's vision. Which brings us to the next gift is leading or administration. So Paul talks about this gift as well. And, and, and I think these, we could describe these as believers who excel at guiding others. Believers who excel at guiding others by charting a path forward and compelling others to follow by example, by their godly living. So they excel at giving guidance. They excel at leading. They excel at charting paths forward and compelling others to follow. And the church needs leaders, administrators, um, folks that can organize and, and mobilize. Sorry, I'm trigger happy on this uh, on this clicker. Uh, another gift is exhortation. Exhortation. We see that show up in Paul's letters. And, and I think this refers to believers who excel 
at urging and encouraging others in the truth. So you could exhortation is, is translated sometimes as encouragement. But believers who excel at urging and encouraging others in the truth. And I think as well as, as, as motivating them to live accordingly to the truth. Right? So you think about the exhorter or the encourager. They come alongside you and, and really help you when you're weak in, in exhorting you in the truth. No doubt you're thinking of examples right now of, of those kinds of folks. Another gift that Paul describes is giving. Giving. So this is pretty self-explanatory, but um, it's believers who thrive on being generous uh, with others, generous with their material possessions, to meet the needs of others and bless others. So when they think of love, they think, oh, I just want to, what needs do you have? Well, how, can I, how can I meet those needs with with my resources that I have. Tremendous gift to the church. Additionally, we have gifts like mercy. Mercy. This refers to believers who excel in in ministering to and encouraging those who are hurting or suffering. They move in toward the, the, the plight when they see it. They don't run away from it. We typically describe these kinds of people as, as people with huge and tender hearts, right? They empathize quickly with the plight of other people. They're not afraid to kind of get in the mess of situations and really just roll up their sleeves and, and serve those folks. Those are people with the gift of mercy. Additionally, we have gifts like discernment. Discernment. And a gift like this refers to believers who excel in, in distinguishing between what's true and false. What's true and false. Falsehood and error. Falsehood and truth, I should say. They typically see issues very clearly, and they can speak to them with clarity as well. And so they edify the church. They keep the the church from error and and walking in the truth. Discernment. Next, we have the gift of faith. Faith. This refers to believers who have extraordinary faith, just like it sounds. And I think the key here is, is they, they trust the Lord and, and it's really displayed through suffering. Normally when faith would be shaken, theirs isn't. And by their example, they compel others who may be weak in faith to follow their example in trusting the Lord. No doubt we know many like that even among our own congregation. The gift of faith. And I'll mention a few more here. The gift of healing or miracles. We see that in Paul's lists. I think here it refers to believers who are gifted to heal and perform miracles. And I think, here's the key, with some kind of regularity. Okay? Some kind of regularity. And we believe these gifts have ceased after the Apostles' era. But that does not mean that the Lord still can't heal and work miracles as He sees fit. We're just saying that we don't believe that there's the regularity of this gift of, of healing or miracles. And finally, there's another one that shows up um, in, this, in these lists in their tongues and interpretation of tongues. And it appears uh, in the scriptures that the gift of tongues is the ability to speak in other languages, known languages, and then with the gift of interpretation being just that, that someone knows that language and they interpret the message of the, of the language for the edification of the entire congregation. And we also believe that this, this gift of tongues has ceased 
after the first century as well. And we'll talk through a few of these other giftings that you see uh, in verse 11 that we mentioned earlier tonight. But for now, just keep in mind that, that no list of the gifts are exhaustive. All right? No list is exhaustive. Nothing, nothing is comprehensive. And that means there's just almost endless ways to be used by God for the good of other people. But you might still be a little uncertain. You might still be wondering, okay, well, how do I know that I actually have one, Clay? Well, notice how explicit Paul is here in verse 7. He says that each one of us has been graced with a gift. You see that? Verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us. Nobody's excluded. No one got left out uh, in the gift distribution. And even if you have no clue how the Lord could use you, if you're a believer this morning, you have been gifted according to this text by the authority of the Word of God. It was part of your salvation package. You've been outfitted by Christ himself to help other people in this body. And that means, like we said earlier, you are indispensable to the growth of the body. You're indispensable to this body at Timberlake by Christ's very design. We could go even further and say it displeases our Lord when we are just spectators in his church. See that? Everyone is designed by him to be an active participant. If you aren't actively participating in the church, then this church is not as healthy as God intends it to be. There are unused gifts laying around. Christ has given you a free grace gift, and he expects you to max it out for his glory and the good of others. We'll look a little more carefully at that tonight, but just want to lay that before you. And we have to know this little truth. We've got to know this because serving's often tough, isn't it? Relating to others is messy business, and it's very easy to justify not doing it. I have the same temptations you have in your heart. We're tempted to stay on the fringe. We're tempted to not really get involved because, after all, we're tired. We're hurt from a previous ministry. We don't have energy we used to. We don't want to become overcommitted and sacrifice too much of our time. And man, what are we paying these pastors for anyway? Like, don't we, don't we pay them to do the work of ministry? So it's, it's very easy to justify staying on the sidelines. We've got to know that, that the Christ who saved us also gifted us, and he intends us to really max it out for his glory in the church. And we'll talk more about the nuances of that tonight. So, okay, Clay, you've convinced me that I have a gift and I've got to do something with it. Maybe I haven't convinced you. I hope I haven't convinced you. I hope Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, has convinced you uh, from the Word. But how do I figure out what I have? Right? So I'm a little bit lost here. I know that, I, okay, you're saying I have one. How do I figure it out? Well, I wouldn't necessarily suggest taking some kind of spiritual gifts test or inventory. Not that that's bad. But I don't think we need to overcomplicate this process. What do I mean? Well, those closest to you probably know where you're gifted and limited, right? So ask them. 
Have you ever asked those closest to you to give you feedback on where you seem to excel in church life? Family, friends, and even pastors who know you will often be able to help you identify where the Lord is using you or where He could use you. Or how about this? When you think about loving people in the church, and I just say that, like what do you instantly visualize? What does that look like? If I said to you, hey, go love that person right over there, what would you kind of be your, your modus operandi? Like what would you just instantly kind of gravitate toward? What manifestations of love do you naturally uh, fulfill and do and, and gravitate toward? Often our God-given gifts will emerge when we're seeking to love other people. Just kind of help you flesh this out. The helper will most naturally love someone, not by exhorting them in the truth, typically, but by discerning and meeting practical needs. Now, caveat that, that doesn't mean that they can't exhort or shouldn't exhort because they don't have the gift of exhortation. In fact, we should all be encouraging, even though we don't necessarily have that gift, But exhortation, the point is, exhortation won't be as natural for them as helping would be. So what I tell folks who are unsure about their gifts is just to immerse yourself in in seeking to love and to serve the people around you. You're probably already doing that in your family. And your family is part of the church, Lord willing. To seek and love and serve the, the people of Timberlake, the people around you. So, that raises another question. Well, how can I get started? Ah, how can I get started in serving? Well, when I get asked that question, I'm often asked that, and, and people envision like an official position of some kind, you know, like a, a particular post, if you will, in the church, and that's, that's good. Um, guitar player for the music team, hospitality coordinator, greeter, those kinds of things. Positions are incredibly important. But a temptation here is to think that you can only serve if you have an official position, right? Something formal. But I like to try to get people thinking beyond the formal to the thousands of informal ways that we can serve each other. And I want people to to understand, like, that's just as important, if not more so, than the formal positions. So I, I tend to think in two categories when you think about serving. I think in using our gifts. I think informally, like we just said, we'll talk about that, and then formally, and we'll talk about that as well. So let's talk about the informal ways we, we serve. So in, at the most basic level, just, we just encourage you as pastors to get involved in the lives of other people in this church. Get to know people in your Sunday school class or a ministry that you're involved in. And obviously, if you're not involved in anything beyond the corporate service, you need to be, um, because that's how we get to know people. That's how we're shepherded, amongst many other things, beyond just the, the, the corporate services, as helpful and as essential as the corporate surface services are. And as you're doing that, be attentive to the needs of other people and find ways to meet those needs. Befriend someone, get to know them, seek to be an encouragement to them. Younger saints, take initiative. Meet an older saint and find a way to help them during the week. And older saints, let them help you. Those with homes, invite others over for meals to get to know them and find ways that you can pray for them. 
The point here is you don't need a church leader to make that happen for you. That's informal. And I can guarantee you that if you're pursuing others to really love them, you will be using your gifts um, in that pursuit. So that's informal. Let's talk about formal ways we can serve. This is kind of what we're more, more familiar with. On the formal side, some advice I would give is just talk to some folks who you notice are very involved and then ask them what the needs are of the church or maybe ways that you could help them because they're often maxed out. So to give you a head start, I uh, polled the staff this week via email and uh, asked them about some of our most pressing formal needs. Any guesses? Children's ministry, I heard the whispers, you bet, yep. The medical team could also use uh, some more volunteers. The children's ministry could also use a few more um, volunteers. The greeter team is in need. The children's ministry could also use some help right now. We also need ushers and maybe a few more children's ministry volunteers and workers. So uh, just, just giving you some examples there. I'm going to embarrass Debbie. That was actually from Debbie's email to me this week. So I can't even take credit for that. So pray to be used. Then find an area that needs you and seek to avail yourself in meeting that need. God will eventually help you see where He has gifted you and how you can be most useful to Him in that, in that gifting. And you'll find others affirming you in your gifts, and you'll eventually see the Lord producing fruit in and through you when you do those gifts, when you perform them. And even if you serve somewhere where you're not exactly gifted, right? You're just filling a need that's there. You're the most gifted one in the queue, right, for that need it's still beneficial to the church, and it'll be beneficial to you. Because remember, your gifts aren't about you, are they? Your gifts are given to you for the sake of other people. It's for their edification. We don't serve to simply get personal gratification from the use of of our gifts. We don't serve to get glory for ourselves. We don't serve, even for college students, just to get CSER credit. We serve to bless and to benefit other people and to cause others to grow for the glory of God. Now, I think one more question maybe. Well, what if I'm insecure or unsure if I'm really needed here in this church? It seems like there's a lot going on here and that ministry's a well-oiled machine and things are happening and I I just don't really know where I I can fit. I'm insecure. Will I even be useful? Well, I want you to notice one more little phrase in verse 7. Paul says that you've been gifted according to the measure of the gift of Christ. According to the measure of the gift of Christ. Now, what does that mean? Well, this means that Christ has sovereignly determined what kinds of gifts you should have and how much of it you should have. So, the kind and the amount of the gifts. He's determined that. They're according to the measure of Christ's gift. Pastor Brian often tells us this, and it's so helpful. He says that Christ has gifted you and he has limited you in his infinite wisdom. 
And we should trust that the Lord of the church knows what he's doing, even if we are not completely sure how we can be useful. See that? Sometimes I think what happens is, is when we're in the body and we're looking around, we see others being extremely useful and we fall prey to what we call gift envy. You know what I'm talking about? We wish that God had made us like others in the body who seem more useful to Him. And while we do that, we actually ignore how He's gifted us and we're not making the most of our gifting that He's gifted us with. Or we put pressure on ourselves to be just like someone else in the body when God may not have given you those particular strengths. Imagine saying this to Christ. I don't like the gifts you've given me. I would be more useful to you with a different set of gifts, Lord. I almost shudder to even say that out loud. I mean, you think about that. The kind of unbelief that's, that's happened in our hearts with, with something like that. And we've all been there. I mean, I've been there too. May we never say that to the Lord of the church, who knows exactly how we will be most useful to Him, and has outfitted every one of us, particularly with His grace, to make that a reality. And the fact that, that Christ has measured out our gifting, like he says here, this also implies, like we said, he's limited us. And that's good. He's limited us. He chose to give you this gift and not that gift. Or this set of gifts and not that set of gifts. All right, can you key in here? Can I just speak to you for a moment? Christ has not given the pastors all the gifts and the rest of the church one gift. You laugh, but it's incredible how many people think that. It's just not true. We are all limited by design. And that's because God has structured the church in such a way as to be interdependent. Interdependent. We're going to see tonight that that growth in the church happens when every single member is working together, verse 16, according to the way they've been gifted. And this means then that that you need the gifts of others for your growth. You ever think about that? You need their gifts to be operative so that you can grow. And, the flip side is true, others in the body need you to use your gifts for their growth. If you're not involved in the lives of others at Timberlake, you're actually weakening our church. Our church walks with a limp because of your inactivity. An area that you could come in and help shore up because we need you. There are people who are limited. One thing that that I think about a lot is there are people who are limited in our congregation and they need your gifts to more fully develop into the image of Christ. I mean, imagine the Lord of the church looking at your life and your gifts are just laying there on the floor and they're not even being used while this other part of the body is languishing because he gave you that gift to go meet that need. And you're not doing it. But at the same time, for those of us who are not really sure exactly how we should be used, this incredible motivation to serve. Like, I've got to figure these things out. I have to know how the Lord wants to use me here and to really get, get after pursuing that. It's incredible motivation. These realities are incredible motivations to serve. Now, I do just want to just be real here. 
Paul is in this text. When we are less mature, okay, I'm talking about being useful. When we are less mature, we are less useful in our gifts. We typically cause more problems um, in the church rather than solving problems and helping and, and, and growing. So, we're like the fractured bone more than the, the, the mended bone. And if that's you, hear me. Don't be discouraged. We're all there at different points, right? And when we start the Christian life, Paul calls us toddlers uh, in this passage. So when we, we start there. And, but the point in this passage is that, that the incredible thing is, is that God has made provision for this in the church. And tonight we're going to look at how God has gifted leaders to the church to help mend you to help get you on the mend, to help grow you to maturity, to be a more useful gift. We'll get there tonight. Just right now, I want you to take heart, if that's you, and know that if God has saved you, His intention, no matter how deeply embedded their sin is in your life, and difficulty, and and you feel unuseful, if He has saved you, he He intends to also transform you over time to use you more and more as you grow right here at the church, and that is hopeful. So, I want to take some time now and talk about uh, what we haven't covered yet in this, this heading, this major statement. We've been given ministry grace by Christ. We've looked at that, but that's not all, not all that Paul says here in our, in, our, in our passage. He says this gifting is actually um, in fulfillment of Scripture. It's in fulfillment of Scripture. Look with me in um, verse 8. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. So this is in fulfillment of Scripture. This is very important for us to know, and I'll I'll show you why that is at the end. So what's Paul doing here? Well, he's he's loosely quoting here from Psalm 68, 18. Psalm 68, 18. And he's essentially saying that, that this psalm was written ultimately about the event he just told us about. The event where Christ poured out gifts on all of us. So he says, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, an inference, therefore it says. So it means then that according to Paul, this psalm is is functioning, it's looking forward beyond even its original setting, ultimately to the ascension of Christ, Paul says. Now, this is where it gets a bit tricky. If we go back to the psalm and we check it out, it would appear that the psalm is not about Christ. It was written before Christ, right? And it appears that it's about the Lord, because it is about the Lord, about Yahweh ascending the mountain of Jerusalem. The psalm poetically tells the story of God's rescue of Israel from Egypt. It tells the story then of their conquest of Canaan, and then, sort of the climax, is Yahweh's ascent to Jerusalem to make Jerusalem his dwelling place. Where his temple would be. He would dwell among his people. And that's the original reference to the phrase in our text, 
the, the phrase, when he ascended on high, with the on high being Jerusalem, with its focus on the temple. And in this ascent to Jerusalem, then, according to the psalm, Yahweh led a host of captives. And I think the best meaning in that context is that he took prisoners of war uh, through King David and, and the kings even before him, or the leaders before him. And I think it's, it's likely a poetic reference to all the enemies of Israel that Israel conquered by David and the previous leaders. So he takes them captive in victory over them. Then, the psalm text says that Yahweh received gifts from men. He received gifts from men. This is a reference to the contributions that Israel made for the building of the temple in Solomon's day. So remember that as as they came in the land and they received contributions for the tabernacle and temple. um, And ultimately they they built the temple by by those gifts and contributions. So the point here is there's a prophetic pattern. First, there's an ascent of Yahweh to rule in victory over his enemies. And second, there's a receiving of gifts for the building of the temple, where he would then dwell forever. The psalm itself ends with an expectation of a future work of God cast in this same pattern. So Paul here sees it fulfilled in the future, in the ministry of Jesus. And Paul interprets the one who ascended as Jesus himself. He ascended in victory over his enemies, the hostile powers he described in Ephesians. And he ascended in victory by virtue of his death. He's already told us this in the book of Ephesians, chapter 1. And this is exactly how Paul goes on to explain the meaning of this quote. Read with me in verse 9. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? And he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Now there's a lot here, and just don't have time, so let me just kind of hit hit the highlights. Jesus is the one who ascended in glory to heaven over his enemies, is the same one, Paul says, who first descended... I think, here's the key, to death to accomplish the victory. So death, I think, is the reference here to the the lower regions. Some people have interpreted this text to mean that Christ descended into Hades, or Sheol, and let out all the Old Testament saints. I don't think that's what Paul's referencing in in the context of Ephesians here. I think it most naturally means his descent to the grave by way of the cross. And if you want a a contextual cross-reference on that would be chapter 1, verse 20. He talks about the ascension of the the Lord, and and he pairs that with the death of Christ. So some people have interpreted it to mean that, but I I think it's more likely just he's descending to death, and then he's raised. But here's the point, okay? I don't want us to get caught in the weeds right now. The point, especially in this context, is that just like Yahweh received gifts for the building of a physical temple, in Psalm 68. Now the Lord Jesus gives gifts for the building of his end-time temple, the church. Okay? I think that's that's the point of this passage. 
Jesus is giving gifts for the building of His temple, the church. And in fact, the way Paul quotes this text, he's saying that Jesus, His ascension and His bestowal of the spiritual gifts is the ultimate and climactic fulfillment of the pattern of Psalm 68. It's the ultimate climactic fulfillment of this pattern. Now why do I say all this? Okay? If I've lost you with the whole Psalm 68 thing, just key back in now. I said all that because I want, you to, I want to underscore something incredibly glorious for you. When you exercise your gift, when you serve in this body, when you lay your life down for the good of others, you are helping build the end-time temple of God. Something that's far greater and far more glorious than the building in Jerusalem. That's what Paul wants us to see. He told us back in in chapter 2 that now in Christ, we as the church are growing together with one another into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. He uses this temple language. In fact, he calls us a holy temple, meaning we are the holy of holies now in Christ. Look back with me in chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 19. He says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. Okay, so this is like the exclamation point of chapter 2. You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Listen to the language. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So did you hear that language? The church is this predicted temple. If we had time, we could go back into the the Old Testament and look and see the, the expectations of a new temple that would be built that would be built by humans. Humans would be the, the temple that God would dwell in and among. It would be His people. So the church is this predicted temple where God lives and will live forever. And we get the privilege of being gifted to build it up. When you serve, You are fulfilling promises made to the saints millennia ago. You're participating in the most climactic pattern of all of Scripture. That's an incredible privilege. And Paul knows we've got to know this. We have to be reminded of this. This has to be convictional for us. Because if we're honest, serving doesn't always feel like a privilege, does it? Needs are just that. They're needs. And meeting needs takes energy, it takes time, thoughtfulness, intentionality, and resources. We're often, you know, nobody has time. We're often robbing Peter to pay Paul to meet these needs, right? So, I get it. 
And if we're not careful in, in all of this, we can lose this perspective. We can lose sight of the bigger vision of why we're serving. And we can even lose sight of what we're seeking to accomplish when we serve. It's all too easy to get in the grind of ministry, serving your family, serving the Sunday school class, serving the babies in the nursery, and think the mission is just to keep the ministry machine going day in and day out. It's just far more grand than we realize. So the next time you spread mulch at a church work day, or you get called in to the nursery for the third time in the month, actively call this to mind. The next time you're, you're spending some extra hours helping a church member work through an issue in their lives, bring this to bear in your heart that you are fulfilling Scripture as you build the new temple unto the glory of God. What an incredible and glorious mercy to serve our Lord. And so let's remind each other, day in and day out, that we are profoundly privileged to serve. Amen? Let's pray. Father, after we look at a text like this and we think about how you've enabled us, we can't help but think, back to Ephesians 2, that we were dead in our transgressions and sins. What an unspeakable mercy it is to have been redeemed by you. You came into our deadness and you said, let there be life in our dead hearts to know you and serve you. You averted your wrath. You punished your son. And now you dwell among us as your temple. And you've gifted us. It would be enough if we were just part of that temple, but you've gifted us to be part of its upbuilding, to be part of its expansion in the world, to be part of magnifying your glory. Um, and so we pray. We pray that you, would, that you would renew our minds this morning out of a text like this. You would deeply encourage us and motivate us to serve you um, with all of our days. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.